the principle of growth plus rights, the idea that you should also have a near religious commitment to certain basic human rights that you just don't violate for any reason, even if you could do so and get more economic growth. Welcome to the Book Society podcast. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Marfitt, who I've known for many years, is a computer scientist, a mathematician, a educator, the founder of the MetaUni, the founder of the Melbourne Deep Learning Lab, and an all-around cool guy who I used to hang out with in LA and just shoot the breeze. Overly generous, but thank you, yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming to us from Australia. Yes, Melbourne. We've read many books simultaneously. And the book that Daniel chose is Stubborn Attachments by Tyler Cowen. I had never heard of this book. I didn't know anything about it. The first thing I want to say before we actually start talking about the meat of the book is this is just a beautiful book. It feels good in your hands. The paper is nice. It's a hardback, but it doesn't come with a dust cover. I just love everything about it. So this publisher is Stripe press so stripe is a company that does financial service sort of stuff i mean you would have used stripe's products i think in various stores they produce tools that people use to run their businesses and on the side they run a publishing house which you're right makes one of some of the most beautiful books i've ever seen which is pretty embarrassing for the rest of the publishing industry i have to say so basically you should buy any of their books they're all interesting a lot of them are related to technological progress or other important issues of our time as my agent is shopping my book i've been paying attention to like what publishers make books that i like so i'm sure he's reached out to them but we'll see so stubborn attachments this is the first book that i've read on this podcast that i didn't really understand so i read it twice it has some arguments in it that are profound and maybe it's just because i'm not used to thinking this way it wasn't so much that i didn't understand anything that he was talking about it was that i had trouble really remembering it i guess it was in one ear out the other and as i'm reading it i was like oh that totally makes sense but then i couldn't explain to you back what i had just read and it's because a lot of it is really so counterintuitive and so against the grain of how the evolved human mind processes information that it's just difficult for a plebeian like me to understand. I know that you have lived in a world of numbers for long enough that this probably makes more sense to you than it does to me. But as a child of the humanities, this was all revolutionary new information for me and I had trouble even wrapping my brain around it. Well, that's great. I was worried this book might be boring because it was too banal and obvious. <laughs> so, <laughs> so good. <laughs> We've got plenty to talk about. Had you heard of Tyler Cowen before reading this? No. Okay. So I think in some spheres, he's very famous. So he's an economist, professor at George Mason University. But I think more importantly, these days, he runs a blog called Marginal Revolution, which I read every day. Many people read every day. So he's a very influential economist, actually. So he also runs a very successful podcast that I think is excellent in Silicon Valley. I think he's very widely read and everything he writes is thought about. So I think he's quite influential on what people inside big tech think, which is increasingly what the rest of us get to think. So I think this work, and he has an earlier book called The Great Stagnation. Maybe this book feels a bit more like a passion project that's not as widely read as his other works, I think, but it's clearly very dear to his heart, I think. Yeah, it's very short. That's why I was able to read it twice because I got to the end of it. I felt like, well, that didn't take very long. There's some math in it. There's some philosophy in it. This book really did make me feel stupid. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> so hopefully for the podcast listeners, we can like get Dan to pull the lessons of this book out of it. And you should go buy it 
But if you don't read it, this will be like a compendium to the book. Maybe I'll try to sum up his thesis as I saw it, which is that we have to take a broader view of what economic success means and to include stewardship of the planet and consideration for future generations in our decisions. And to what degree we should or are able to do that is sort of the argument that he has in the book. And the main vehicle to doing that is economic growth, which is less and less fashionable. It seems to me the main thing he's doing is recentering growth as a moral obligation, which I think is a difficult pill to swallow for at least many of the people in my social circle who tend to be academics and rather left-leaning maybe. So this is not a fashionable way of viewing the world anymore, I guess. At least in the West, in China, it's different, which is one of the interesting things we might get into. Yeah, the idea that growth is a moral imperative is interesting because it's a tough pill to swallow for the liberal American Twitterati and the fashionable crowd, but it's certainly something that would appeal to a tech billionaire who wants to feel like he or she is doing the right thing and changing the world, but also wants to feel socially responsible. And he makes a good case for wealth being a moral imperative. He starts by saying that it's the one thing that Ayn Rand got right, <laughs> which he says very delicately. So it's on page 55 for those reading at home. So he states two principles. So he says the principle of growth is we should maximize the rate of sustainable economic growth. This is kind of as a system of ethics, actually. The term economic growth here refers to what you already named, which was wealth plus, which is not purely GDP, but maybe one way to think about it, he lists some of the other values that might go along inside this package called Wealth Plus, things like leisure time or overall health or something like that, that may not show up in the GDP figures. But you might think about it like this. So at a given level of GDP, so the economy is producing a certain number of goods and services, you could rearrange how those services are produced and those goods are produced to, for example, do them in half the time and use all the remaining time to spend time with your kids. That'll definitely make people happier, but it may not actually increase GDP. That extra time with your kids doesn't involve movie theaters or ice cream. Or anything. <laughs> well, in COVID, it doesn't. Right, only the park. <laughs> that wouldn't increase the GDP, but it would certainly be a good outcome if you could produce all the goods and services in half the time and use the remaining time to improve your quality of life. So somehow, suppose you could measure that. That's what Tyler Cowen calls wealth plus. Right. And that would count stay-at-home moms. The work that they do would be measured into wealth plus and time you spend on Facebook because it contributes to maybe your happiness or your sense of well-being or whatever. Maybe Facebook doesn't, but time you spend reading. Yeah, let's go with that. And that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> he specifically says Facebook, but... Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> We'll get into the reasons why growth might be something, I suppose, that is of moral depth. But I guess the other word to talk about there is sustainable. So that has a precise mathematical incarnation in this appendix I already mentioned. I guess the word sustainable has the meaning that, that one thinks it does. It's no good if you have economic growth for 10 years by destroying the planet and then everything collapses. That's not the kind of thing you're aiming for. We should talk about the Crisonia plant. So he has this neat conceptual trick. Where does the name come from? From Robinson Crusoe. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So he has this idea of a free lunch is the basic concept, right? So we have this idea that there's no such thing as a free lunch. But in some sense, that's not true. As Cowan points out, the universe started at some point and there was a whole lot of value from nothing. So that's one free lunch. And maybe there are other ones. 
economic growth is in some sense a free lunch. I mean, it's not free because you have to work hard for it and there are externalities and side effects and definitely not everything is good about high levels of economic growth, but you get much more out of economic growth than in a sense you put in. Economic growth is largely a product of productivity growth, which means by definition that you get more value out of the same inputs and the same amount of labor, right? So the same stuff coming out of the ground, the same amount of hours of human effort today in 2021 produces a lot more value than it did in 1800. So in some sense, that's a free lunch. We use the same resources and the same human time and we get much more. GDP growth is sort of the wrong metric. This is the main way Australia has GDP growth, to be honest. So we just have more immigrants and they contribute more to GDP. So GDP per capita is a more difficult thing to increase. But that is much higher than it was in 1800. So that's a consequence of technology and other things, but to a large degree technology. So we produce more value per unit of time and resources than we used to by a large margin. And that's why we're wealthier and healthier and many other things. One of the questions that he starts with in the book is that he had asked a bunch of journalists in the late 90s how much they estimated the standard of living had increased in the 20th century. And the average answer was about 50%. Was that, you know, people in the end of the 20th century were about 50% better off than people at the beginning of the 20th century. When the actual answer in pretty much every measurable way is somewhere between 500 and 800%. It's something like five times better. And this is really kind of interesting right now, because to look at the pandemic that happened in 1918 and 19 to the one that's happening now 100 years later, in 1918, half the world was basically still peasant farmers. And half of it was pretty close to what we are today. But most Americans had more than two people to a room at the turn of the 20th century and didn't have running water. And the high school graduation rate was something like 6%, where now it's closer to 96%. So the century that had the most growth in human history also produced the hugest jump in standard of living for basically everyone on the planet. Well, the viewers, my wife, Lavender, is Chinese. So I spend some time in China. I spend quite a bit of time thinking about China. And if you have Chinese friends, you may notice if you spend a lot of time in conversation with them that there are some significant gaps in worldview. And one of them is to do with this exact issue. So Lavender's family, when she was young, didn't have a refrigerator or a washing machine. So that's my parents' childhood. So they went from that to, if you walk into my parents-in-law, their apartment in Nanjing now, you won't really be able to tell the difference between an apartment in Australia. I mean, it has the same gadgets and the same facilities. So imagine going from my parents' childhood in terms of technological level and level of automation. I mean, so Lavender's mother had to wash clothes by hand. Going from that to a modern standard of living inside one lifetime. If you see that with your own eyes, you don't doubt the possibility of growth and how much it can mean to changing quality of life. It's part of your lived experience. Whereas growing up in Australia, okay, we have the internet now. Netflix is great. I guess I don't have to go and get VHS cassettes from the video store, but it's not the same kind of thing. So I think it's easy to be skeptical of A, the possibility of growth, and B, its tangible effects on what it means to live a human life if you grew up in a rich country like Australia or the United States. 
Well, yeah, for me, it's easy as a liberal person to say that the effects of growth are so marginal that they're not worth the cost to the planet and to the other people that have to be exploited by this growth. But that's because, as you said, I went from color television to the internet. And that is fairly minor compared to the growth over the previous 100 years. Even though those are profound revolutions, it is very minor compared to sending telegraph messages over wires up to you and I are able to speak to each other face to face, essentially, from two different continents. I mean, we couldn't be further away from each other on the world right now. Maybe we should go back and say what the Crusonia plant actually is. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so the Crusonia plant is an imaginary plant which delivers apples or whatever fruit constantly, requires very minimal water, requires no attention, and drops seeds, and you plant more of them. It's a source of value that just keeps exponentially improving with very little input. So you just keep taking the seeds, planting more Crisonia plants, and they continue to grow. And Cowan's point is that if you can find a Crisonia plant, if this mythical thing exists, then, well, you should prefer to plant more Crisonia plants to doing almost anything else because it's very hard to compete with exponential growth is the point. Many of the other things you might imagine doing may improve things for a while, but to get something that exponentially grows, right? Over some period, it just doubles and then doubles again and then doubles again. It's extremely hard to imagine anything positive you might do in terms of impact, which can compete with that, presuming that the Crisonia plant is not just for decoration, right? So in this case, it's producing food, which is something you want. But if you have some other Crisonia plant, which is in some sense translating the product that comes out of that Crisonia plant is translating into other things you care about, economic growth maybe isn't that tangible, right? Because it doesn't make a big difference in a year. The difference between a 2 or 3% growth rate isn't that directly appreciable in one year. But over the course of 50 years or 100 years, it's an enormous difference. That's the difference between America today and Mexico today in terms of the average quality of life. If that Crisonia plant produces value, which can be translated into other things, then optimizing for that growth may be a better way of producing those things than going straight at them. I think about energy and taking oil out of the ground seems like a really inefficient means of producing energy when the surface of the planet is being bombarded by an unimaginable amount of energy on a daily basis. And the oceans and the motion of the earth is producing an unimaginable amount of energy. And even if it took us 100 years to figure out how to harness it, or a lot of money to figure out how to harness it, the upside is huge. So it seems like obviously you would prefer the Crusonia plant of renewable energy to the bamboo plant of fossil fuel. But that doesn't take into account the human element, which is We've built companies in a way of life off of one way of producing energy. So this is something that the book talks about. It's a really hard pill to get present Lucas and Dan to swallow, to have our quality of life go down so that our children's quality of life can be 10 times greater. And you can almost never convince any population to do that, even though everyone says that they would do that for their children or their grandkids. Like I said at the beginning, it's not built into the way that our minds work. It's almost impossible for us to endure long-term hardship in exchange for generational gains. This is part of the decadence of the West, to be blunt. So every Chinese parent does that, for instance, even in the West. Most of us, I suppose, are foregoing some kind of consumption in the present to make investments in our children's education. It's just a difference of degree. I'm not talking about 
not eating out so that you can afford to send your kid to medical school, which would have a positive impact on their future. But what would have an even more positive impact on their future is if we didn't use fossil fuels by the time they were in their 40s. The air would be cleaner. They would be healthier. Everyone around them would be healthier. I think part of what Tyler Cowan is saying is that it actually makes more sense for you to drive an electric car than it does for you to save money so you can, can go to medical school because the outcome will be better if everyone is healthier. The outcome will be better if the planet is more renewable. But I mean, like, for the fictional grandchildren of a generation or two beyond us who we'll never meet, it's almost impossible for us to make sacrifices for their sake. Cowan refers to this as a deep concern for the distant future. So this is a very difficult thing to internalize. Right? An interesting thread through the book, which I'd like to get your take on, is faith appears a few times, which is quite interesting, right? So I mean, let's take just increasing the growth rate by 1%. If you wait long enough, this can mean an arbitrarily large improvement in our descendants' lives, right? But how to get people to care to struggle desperately to get the growth rate up by 1%. That's not something that people feel very motivated to do. Unless it becomes something like an article of faith, it's not too distinct from just making a blind leap into believing that whatever you're doing now to improve the growth rate will pay off at some time for people you'll never see for descendants very far away from you in time and possibly in space. I think it's not a cognitive process that we're very well equipped to make except as a kind of act of faith or as at least an axiom in our value system, let's say. Maybe that's part of what Cowan is suggesting is that really this shouldn't be something we question or have to argue ourselves into. The book is him trying to argue us into this act of faith with math, which I agree with. I think about World War II and that is at least historically the only time I can think of in the recent past where the whole Western world was really engaged in a zero-sum, no-holds-barred struggle and was willing to sacrifice almost anything up to and including their lives in order to better the future of generations that they would never meet and also generations that were present and people at home. But it's not at all clear to me that the average person from Iowa really knew in great detail what they were going to do when they went over to Germany to get shot in some place that they'd never heard of before. But they had this overarching faith that it would be better for the world and better for their children and better for everyone's children if they were to go and do it. And they did it. And what Cowan's saying and what you're saying to some degree is we should have that level of concern all the time for the distant future. But that's just not possible. Think about where our growth would be if we had World War II levels of production for the last 70 years. The Manhattan Project was now 70 years old, just out in the middle of the desert coming up with crazy shit. And that's just all they did. And they had an unlimited budget to do it. <laughs> that doesn't sound like such a good thing, given what yeah. the Manhattan Project was, but maybe some other sort of project, yeah. I guess the counter argument for this growth is good and growth is the end all be all is that, I mean, I think there's gotta be a cap. I guess that's sustainable growth, right? When people think about sustainable economic activity, they often think about staying at a fixed level of production, right? Let's make sure we don't collapse for example, the soils are very easy to degrade, which is definitely true in Australia. And you want to farm in such a way that you can continue to farm in exactly that way for 600 years. That's one way of thinking about sustainable. But sustainable growth is a very different thing, right? That's the aim to maintain a given rate of exponential growth over a long period. So things are definitely changing quite rapidly. Exponential growth is crazy once you let it keep going for a while. So sustainable growth is like a sustainable whirlwind. It's a kind of strange term, to be honest. 
So it means that a lot is changing, but you keep adapting to the change in such a way that you can keep the change going, keep running to stay in the same place. As you said that, I realized that World War II was 70 years ago. And so if we were growing at about 1.5% a year, then we should be at World War II levels of production right now, approximately. If we were growing sustainably over 1% or 2% a year, then our production should be 100% higher than it was 70 years ago. If our ancestors, the greatest generation, were able to double their production overnight, we are now just sort of living at the base level of what that production should have been. For many people, there's a sticking point here, which is to even think it's a good thing to have a higher level of economic production in the future. So maybe it's worth spending a bit of time to make that argument, which Cowan does make. First of all, many places are still poor in the world. So unless you're kind of not a humanist, pretty conclusive, right? If you're poor, then you need to have more stuff. So you need growth. So the argument for growth is very strong in places where people are poor. You don't have to make the argument to them. They desperately want it. But for rich countries like Australia or the United States, well, they're still relatively poor people, not poor peasants in rural China, maybe, at least not on the same scale. But there are still poor people and growth principles should help them. But for those of us in the middle class, let's say, why should we care about whether the economy is twice as big for our children in 50 years? What could they get out of that? Given that we imagine there's all sorts of costs involved or possible downsides, is the risk of aiming for growth worth it? That's an important argument to make. Or maybe it seems kind of self-serving to imagine our lives as being still relatively difficult, but it's not so difficult to imagine that things could be much easier than they are. And for example, many of the things that make our lives difficult are in the form of risks that unless they hit us, we tend to not think about because it makes our lives difficult. But people get sick all the time. Many people are dealing with chronic illnesses in their family. If the world is much wealthier, we can spend enormous quantities on medical research, for instance. There's no reason we can't cure every disease. So this is why this argument falls apart for me as an American, is there's no reason why we can't cure every disease right now. The reason is money. It's not currently profitable to cure every disease. But I don't think that a marginal or a 10x improvement in our productivity is going to make people more incentivized to do a bunch of high-end science that will not yield them any money. I don't see that happening. And I, especially in our current political climate in the United States, I don't see people even allowing the government to do that with their quote unquote taxpayer money. So I think that's where the argument falls apart is that growth is good if the people who are managing the relevant institutions are benevolent, but they often are not. Right. Growth that entirely goes into the pockets of a few people who then just use it to build super yachts is not growth that is morally important <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad Jeff Bezos is very wealthy because Jeff Bezos has created a company that I find very useful and use every day. And my experience is probably similar to everyone's that basically every interaction you have with Amazon is positive. And they really want to help you and really want to do a good job. I think it's great that Jeff Bezos has grown fantastically wealthy off of doing that. Do I really care if Jeff Bezos gets twice as wealthy as he is right now? No, that doesn't matter to me at all. I guess I'm agreeing with you that the standard of living of the middle class doesn't really improve that much, even with a 100% growth, because that growth is accumulating at the top. I'm not an economist, so I can't make this argument authoritatively. But largely what we've had for much of our lifetimes is kind of fake growth, where there's been a significant amount of growth from globalization. 
So worldwide, inequality has gone down a lot. So in some sense, the species is not suffering from this problem you described. So the species somehow, the wealth is evening out to an extraordinary degree. So there's been a lot of global growth in the last 30 years. Inequality has dropped dramatically, largely because many, many poor people, hundreds of millions of poor people in China have moved into cities and become relatively close to being middle class. So my wife's parents could afford to send her to Australia, for instance, as a result of that growth. So worldwide, this isn't the problem. Within rich countries, though, it's definitely true that median wages have been stagnant since 1990 in the US. When we think about growth in rich countries like Australia and the United States, what we're actually thinking about is our experience, which is the government tells us we have growth and the GDP figures do go up and the stock market seems to go up. But it's a very different kind of growth to what people had from the end of World War II until the 1970s, where there was real growth in median wages, the quality of life of the middle class and the kind of things they could afford to do and earn increased rapidly. This is the kind of growth Cowan is aiming at. You're in a pocket and that pocket is relatively stagnant, at least for you and everybody you know, but there's growth somewhere else and those piles of money come into Jeff Bezos and a few other people at the top. On the one hand, yeah, that's not what Cowan is aiming at. He's describing the moral imperative of the global situation, sort of like the average human has definitely benefited a lot from growth in the last 30 years. I guess this is why I had trouble reading this book is that that's so impossible to even think about on a level that is not too abstract to be useful. Because yes, sure, the average person has improved. But in order to get me to make a sacrifice of any kind, and I don't just mean me, I just mean anyone, there has to be something personal and visceral that necessitates that sacrifice, just knowing that you're going to improve the average outcome for people as much as people would like to think that they will work towards that goal, they will sign a check or maybe donate a dollar to that goal, but they're not going to dedicate their lives to that goal. Maybe I would put Cowan's argument like this. Fuck that, right? Like what we've had <laughs> for the last few decades, fuck that, really. Let's get back to actual genuine growth, like really changing things, in particular, actual technological progress, not this kind of fake technological progress. So this is kind of one of the themes that he was touching on in his earlier book, The Great Stagnation. If we're going to get back to that, we're going to need to find aliens that we can sell shit to, because part of what fueled the growth of the post-war era was the fact that we now had all these new markets that we cornered. And we could go into Germany and say, you guys make really good stuff, but you're going to buy our stuff for a little while now. Well, that's to some extent true, but also unfair. I mean, you can have economic growth in a closed system as we do, which isn't exploitative just by specialization, which is largely what has caused the growth in the last 20 years. This is another topic that will upset your liberal listeners, but there's a lot of criticism of economic growth in China through the role of factory labor and so on. And definitely there are a lot of abuses in China, but you can't imagine how poor people are in farming villages in China. And moving to a terrible, crappy factory in Shenzhen is a big step up from that. Things can really be bad. So it is exploitative, right, in the sense that we don't want our children doing that work. But the world is a pretty complicated place and many people are suffering a lot. And there are worse things than having a very stressful, long hour job making shoes. Of course, I'm not defending like child labor or slave labor or anything like that, right? There's a lot of ways in which economic growth is attached to all sorts of negative things in people's minds, and they're not all legitimate connections. 
So why did all this capital go into China to build factories? Well, it wasn't charity. And if you're suggesting that instead the world should transfer enormous resources to China just out of pure generosity, I mean, maybe that is a better world, but that's hard to imagine such transfers taking place at the scale of hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars over decades. It was transferred there because they had something we wanted, which was cheap labor. And you could say, well, we should do that, but then you would have robbed China of the growth in the last three decades that has lifted half the world's population out of poverty. That's what you're saying, right? I mean, one has to realize the connections between what you want and what it would actually mean in the world if you got your way. I don't think I'm making an argument for or against anything. I'm pointing out the historical reality that our growth in the United States in the second half of the 20th century was fueled by the fact that we had new people to sell our stuff to. The world's growth, let's say the last quarter of the 20th century, was fueled by the fact that China was happy to make that stuff a lot cheaper than anyone else. But none of this growth seems sustainable to me. And the growth post-World War II wasn't really sustainable either because it was dependent on having new markets available and it was dependent on consumerism. And I think that's what a lot of people balk at when they say that progress or growth at any cost cannot be the end all be all because there's only so much shit that a person needs. But there's also no reason why Apple can't make a phone that lasts 10 years. There's no reason why GM can't make a car that is easy to fix. There are reasons why they can't do that. It's because it's not profitable to do that because it's less profitable to do that than to keep people in a cycle of having to buy new stuff all the time which is growth, but I don't know if it's good and I don't know if it's sustainable. Well, on the other hand, without the profit motive, the iPhone wouldn't exist or wouldn't exist for much longer. It's hard to disentangle these things, right? So, okay, why does the iPhone exist? Well, it's not just because Apple is some sort of factory of genius. It is that, but it's also that all those components inside that phone reached certain price points at exactly 2006, 2007. Semiconductors were reaching a certain level of performance per watt. They could run on batteries, which were improving and had improved to the point of making that phone possible. Screen technologies improved year on year and got to the point where they could use that battery and not run out of battery in 20 seconds. So all those things kind of converged and all of those things were evolving according to exponential improvements exactly because of this growth that we're talking about. So certainly you can make a phone in 2021 that lasts for 10 years and has the functionality of an iPhone and maybe people should make that. I guess let's not get into an overall defense of capitalism versus some other system because that's a different topic, maybe. My problem is that I think that a lot of Cowan's arguments in this book are aimed at making tech people feel better about what they're doing. You could make an argument that if you don't pay Apple's researchers $100 billion, then they're not going to be able to make new iPhones and keep up with the competition. But I don't know, maybe if you paid them $80 billion, they wouldn't notice the difference. I think that's fair. I think this criticism of the self-centeredness of tech has some value, but that's also a narrow part of what it means to have growth. So Growth in the real world means, okay, for example, energy costs going down to near zero. And what will that unlock? Or progress in vaccines like we've seen in the last year, or the kinds of progress in drug discovery that will be a consequence of deep minds breakthrough with protein folding in the last year, or going to space. Cowan's earlier book, The Great Stagnation, which was, I guess, to some extent inspired by Peter Thiel's thoughts on these topics, it is true that if you look at the technological changes that happened since 1760 or whatever, when the first industrial revolution started, each 50 years after that, the last 50 years have seen tremendous improvements in computers and certain other technologies, but really not the kind of transformative changes that air conditioning brought or 
automobiles, let's say, indoor plumbing or whatever, if you can aim for the kind of growth that is a consequence of those kinds of technologies, not just making a better version of Twitter. People sleep on the importance of air conditioning. In the West where I live, not in Los Angeles, but in parts of Arizona and in Nevada, air conditioning is a legal requirement for landlords to provide the same way that a landlord has to keep your room in New York City at a certain temperature. You have to be able to cool your place to a certain temperature because in a drywall manufactured structure, you can die in 118 degree heat with no air conditioning and no wind, or if the wind is dust. Cities like Dubai, cities like Las Vegas couldn't exist without air conditioning. So let me invite you to have a last word. And also, once you're done with that, to recommend two books to our audience, one by a living author and one by a deceased author. So my last word is that the principle of growth is not the complete story in the book. So the main organizing principle is the principle of growth plus rights. The idea that you should also have, a, he doesn't say this, but near religious commitment to certain basic human rights that you just don't violate for any reason, even if you could do so and get more economic growth. So it's the combination of prioritizing growth. The purpose of that is really a deep belief in the existence of future individuals and if there are many more people in the future, or even just the same number, you want the future to be good for them. And whatever else you might say about it, you don't know a more reliable way of making the future better for people than growth. And nobody else does either. So whatever, grow. <laughs> Do so without sacrificing people's lives and rights to it. And that's a good system. So says Cowan, and I agree. So by a living author, I think his name is William Rosen. It's called The Most Powerful Idea. That's the history of the first industrial revolution by a dead author. I would read the biography of Bertrand Russell by his daughter, Catherine Russell. It's one of the most touching books I've read. Bertrand Russell was a logician and philosopher and humanist, but not a very good parent. So he tried very hard to improve the lot of the human race, and you could hardly doubt his sincerity in that, but maybe didn't succeed very well in making the lives of his own children good. For those of us who like to imagine the world could be different and better, but trying to make the world different and better comes with costs, especially for people who are the guinea pigs for those changes. So it's a good dose of humility. Bertrand Russell is lionized in many places and is considered to be a great figure of the 20th century, but it's very interesting to see what the consequences of all of that were on his family. Did you read that book before or after you decided to name your son Russell? Before. Before. That makes it even better. All right, great. Well, Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for explaining this book to me. And we'll have to have you on for another complicated math philosophy book in the near future. Thanks. It was good fun. Some parts of America were unoccupiable until air conditioning, right? Some parts of America are currently unoccupiable without air conditioning. <laughs>